Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 98, recorded on August 9th, 2015. On this week's show, we're going to talk about how frogs are assholes. We're going to talk about the federal district court in the Southern District of New York and how they just made, in my humble opinion, a big mistake. Dairy products, friend or foe, and of course, poison peptides as therapy. I say that, of course, because I'm sure everyone knew we were going to talk about that, of course. <laughs> Laughing, life, love, we are humans. I'm already trailing <laughs> off. You are. Hello, normal people of the podcast. Can you can you guys introduce yourself this week? Yeah. I love um, it. So my name is Carolina Balkovich. I'm a registered dietitian in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, and I have a food blog, carolinaskitchen.com, where I post some recipes. And I'm going to talk to you guys about some nutrition science. Oh, I love it. Awesome. That's so much better than when I do it. Christian, can you can you do yours? I think you just did. I'm Christian. Hi. <laughs> Come on. Hello, Christian. I'm, Christian and I. I'm, Christian's, Christian's I'm a guy with petulance, arms. I'm a authority. <laughs> I uh, and Christian... Which is grammatically incorrect. Are PhD, PhD candidates, candidates in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Sorry okay. if I'm a little loopy today. I am. Uh, I have received a spectacular dose of jet lag. Um, I've been home for five days now on my little trip, and I am still getting uh, kicked in the, the proverbial meiosis center of the male anatomy, and uh, and uh, so. My brain is not functioning properly or firing on all cylinders, as they say. I am not on drugs, so no need for an intervention, listeners. Did you guys do anything fun this week? Yes. Anything at all? Yeah. I uh, I went shooting yesterday Ooh, with, uh, like... with Colby and his little Big Brothers Big Sisters. I always thought that, that taking someone from Big Brothers Big Sisters shooting was kind of a weird activity, but <laughs> I don't know. There were There were lots of kids actually out at the shooting range. I guess it is important to teach kids about gun safety. And now, were, you, were you shooting gats or boomsticks? What? Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's how the kids it call shot it. shot a gun. Were, were you like skeet? <laughs> were you like skeet shooting, or were you like, uh, uh, were you shooting like like pistols? I had, um, I'm sorry, we, 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 shot, we shot a Glock, and we had some targets set up. This is very hardcore. <laughs> if you go to betasandwich.com, you'll see Carolina does not look like a, uh, look like a hardcore gat shooter. <laughs> I, put, I have, I have a pretty, I have pretty good aim, though. I, I hit, um, bullseye, and I did fairly well on my target. Maybe I'll post a picture. There you go. Was this just Good for times. fun, or are you can are you are you looking into home security? What's the uh, what was the purpose? Um, both. It's it's home security, but <laughs> and the thing is, like, I we've uh we've been, Colby's been talking about getting me comfortable with shooting a gun for home defense purposes, and I've felt completely uncomfortable with it for the past four or five years that we've talked about it. So I'm starting to get over that fear a little bit and practice. My a philosophy bit. with with home guns is uh is if I were to ever get one to defend my house, it would be, uh, it would be a shotgun, 
mm-hmm. there would not be one in the chamber for the very purpose of every human being on planet Earth knows the sound of a round being chambered in a shotgun. <laughs> and I figure that 99% of people upon hearing that noise would immediately exit the house. Absolutely. I totally and agree. And so that way I don't have to kill anyone. Um, and, and with a shotgun, you don't really have to aim that great. No. You get an Poor excellent aiming range. is fine. And uh, yeah, yeah. And so that that's always been my philosophy. But um, yeah. I don't know. Well, the, the fun thing about shooting um, like a Glock, especially out here in Vegas in the desert, uh, is you can do like some pretty cool like gangster shooting moves or like walk towards your target like you're shooting zombies. You can kind of freestyle it a little bit, so it kind of makes you feel like a badass. That's amazing. Safety That's awesome. first. Yeah. What'd you guys do this week? Yeah, Christian. Uh, man, I didn't do anything. Like, I was at work until four or five o'clock every night, and I know that everyone's gonna laugh because that's you know whatever. But um, I basically just researched a bunch of random stuff at work for some projects and I'm trying to think if I did anything remotely interesting. Um, I bought some video games with my GameStop membership and thought that that was the coolest thing ever. And that's about it. (laughs) Uh, It's like, I feel like I'm reading like a, like a a Jane Austen novel. It was just uh, (laughs) a, No, we're way more. That narrative was just (laughs) just awesome. Uh, Yes, um, I as we uh, as I had mentioned with my my jet lag here is that uh, it was a a very busy week for me. I I I was gone last week. I went to Australia, all that fun stuff. I interviewed um, for a a postdoctoral position in a university there. That went very well. That was all nice and fun. Spent some time in Sydney. It's scuba diving. It's so funny. So I've never, I've divin, divin, dove. I'll say dove. I've dove on the southern Great Barrier Reef before many years ago. And I've always wanted to dive like on the northern Great Barrier Reef, which is like the good, good Great Barrier Reef. And so um, did a side trip up there after I'd interviewed. And it was quite literally the worst scuba diving of my entire life. (laughs) Like a storm had rolled in and like the visibility was like 10 feet and like the water was cold and uh, there was like not a lot of sea life. Like we were excited to see like a like a spearfish, which is like like two feet long and like an inch thick. Like that was the exciting thing to see on the trip. Uh, but it turns out, ironically, that the snorkeling was incredible because like what you, a lot of the Great Barrier Reef is only like five feet below the water. As a matter of fact, a lot of it sticks above the water line uh, at low tide. So if you go down at like mid tide and you're snorkeling, you're you're four feet above the coral, which is like the best case scenario. And there was tons of life and visibility didn't matter as much because you're so close to the surface, the light penetrates fine. And it was one, like I've never in my life expected to say the snorkeling was way better in the scuba, but it was in this case. So that kind of salvaged the the scuba trip there, but it was a lot of fun. And then we went to one of those uh, those croc farms where they uh, where they feed like they, they'll dangle like a like a, a dead chicken, like five feet above the water. And then, like, the crocs will, like, shoot out trying to eat it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun, too. I mean, it's just... I wouldn't have fun. known what you were talking about had you not shown me a picture. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's spectacular. It's a lot of fun. I got one of those, like, iPhone slow motion videos of it. And uh, it's... Uh, those crocs are 
are absolutely terrifying dinosaurs. Like, there's no way around it. They're like 1,500 pounds. Like, some of them are like 15 to 20 feet long, and they are just all prehistoric eating machines. And they're every bit as frightening as you would expect them to be. And, and, uh, yeah, and as most people are aware, you never see the one that gets you. So it's like you're just literally sitting there or swimming, and you have something with 3,000 pounds per square inch of bite force pulling you to the bottom of the water while you either are you either drowned or you are ripped apart as you drowned um probably a little of both so not something to look forward to uh wouldn't recommend that (laughs) so that was a lot of fun but um now i'm back and uh just trying to get over some jet lag so uh some uh speaking which uh, i i apologize to our listeners i'm gonna be out next week too I would be in Japan, and uh, I'm returning. Uh, after that, we're going to try to record another show to put it out so we don't have a big break again, but uh, we really want to thank you for your patience. Um, and we're episode 98, guys. We're almost cracking over 100 episodes. Isn't that fun? Oh, yeah. Crazy. I, I don't think we should do anything that special for the 100th episode simply because, well, I, I always hate it when... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the reason I say it is because... I never like it when, like, my podcast that I listen to regularly, I listen to them for, like, for the, the the non-changing format. I like not having to think too much about it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we're doing a live show with this thing. And I'm like, it's all different, and it's weird, and it's like, I don't just go back to the – I'm listening to you because I like the way you did it before. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being lazy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, so that's we'll the that. longest excuse to be lazy I've ever heard. It is. It is. Uh, uh, speaking of podcasts, I just want to say a couple more things, and we'll, we'll, we've been going a little long here, so we'll, we'll jump into the main stuff here. But um, a, have you guys heard of a podcast called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible? Nope. No. My friend Alan, who Christian knows, um, yep, turned me on to it, and it is an incredible podcast. Uh, dare say, uh, <laughs> it is an excellent podcast. And and uh, and if you left this podcast permanently just to listen to that one, I wouldn't even feel bad. It's that good. So give ninety nine percent invisible a listen just because it's a dang good podcast. Here they go over a, a lot of the. Um, they're little. They're like twenty to thirty minute little shows that go over a lot of just the unknown aspects of life. Like, um, like uh, it's really hard to describe. They go all over the charts, but it's just it's just super interesting. So, um, so uh, that's that. Um, and one last uh, show note. Um, I just want to give a heads out that we're going to do uh, a kind of a special extra extra episode coming out. If you see that, it's not a regular episode. We're going to do something that, in the wrong context, would probably seem desperately narcissistic we're going to talk about our journeys to grad school and our professional degrees and um listener of the show lindy noticed that dale christian and i are all older than your traditional grad student and she made the leap in logic that this wasn't because we repeated the third grade 10 times but rather because we it doesn't had other <laughs> we could have some of us may have but uh generally when you go to grad school in your 30s it's because you did something else you had other jobs before you went to grad school and she really liked uh Dell's making the grad segment and when Dell was on the show and he may be coming back we keep talking about it and hopefully we can make that work um but which focused on getting into grad school and finishing it but Lindy has a BS in biochem and she's been working in the real world for a while so she was sent, wanted to know kind of about our journeys because she's in a similar position to what we were when we came to grad school here so going off the concept that if one person asks the question there's probably many more who would like to know the same thing we're going we would be happy to share our stories and this may seem like 
something shocking to you guys, being the bit of a wallflower that I am, and I really don't like to talk about myself <laughs> very much. But for you, Lindy, I'll make an exception, and we'll do a show just to wax poetic about our lives. And uh, do not feel obligated at all to listen to it. But if that's something you're interested in, it will be up at some point in the future. Okay, so with that being said, thank you for your patience, and we'll move on to Science Blast. Science Blast. Pew, pew. Turns out that's not what a gun actually sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) You should make that sound every time you shoot it, though. I thought about it. You're like, pew, 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 and it's like... (laughs) Oh, good times, good times. Uh, I'm going to flip the show on its head, and I'm going to ask Carolina to talk about some dairy products, if you don't mind. Okay. So I hear a lot of the time um, that people choose not to drink milk because they're concerned about the hormones in it, and they're concerned um, that that milk's really not good for you. and so I looked a little bit into the, the, the reasoning behind that and why some people think that, whether it's true or not and what research it's based on. Um, so you guys have probably seen that the USDA MyPlate, which has replaced the, the Food Guide Pyramid, um, it basically looks like a plate and it shows the food groups. It shows that you should have half a plate of fruits and vegetables and then the other half of the plate represents protein and grains. And then up in the corner, there's a little glass of dairy. So, um, basically the USDA would like you to drink dairy. And the reason behind that is that, uh, dairy containing foods are very, very nutrient rich compared to, um, other beverages. They have calcium, they have vitamin D, they have protein. So those are all important nutrients, um, for, I'm pretty sure my sunny D has all that. (laughs) Yeah, well, so you bring up a good point. Um, generally, milk milk and dairy products are considered the best source, uh, well, the richest source of calcium. Um, but there are a lot of other calcium-fortified products like your Sunny D. I don't know about Sunny D, but definitely there are um, orange juices fortified with just as much calcium as milk has. Anyway, um, the, the the probably the most prominent group that uh, opposes the my plate construct uh, with having dairy as a recommended food group is the Harvard School of Public Health. And they actually came out with their own plate recommendation that just shows a glass of water in place of the dairy. So I went to um, the Harvard School of Public Health's website where they kind of cite their research for why they uh, do not necessarily recommend dairy as your source of calcium and vitamin D. And so looking at it, um, they do explain that that both calcium and vitamin D are very uh, very important for for bone health. Getting enough vitamin K is also important. Um, So how much of it? For for calcium, current research suggests that you need 1,000 milligrams a day um, if you're between 19 to 50 years old, and 1,200 milligrams a day if you're over 50. Um, Main reason for that is... As you age, you're uh, you're not building up. Uh, you're you're not building up more bone. Um, you are actually tearing it down at a higher rate than you are rebuilding it. So, higher calcium will hopefully help to promote uh, bone retention and avoid bone loss. Uh, vitamin D is kind of an interesting one. I mean, we could we could. Can do I give a- you a fun fact about calcium? Yeah. Um, the reason postmenopausal women have a very hard time absorbing calcium is that uh is that estrogen acts as a um 
um, acts to help the bones absorb calcium and to maintain calcium. And so without that estrogen supply, um, they have a very hard time. And so um, um, sometimes women postmenopausal women go on hor- hormone therapy, um, mm-hmm. and that is also dangerous as well because it incre- uh, estrogen is associated with a lot of different cancers. Um, they'll enhance the rate of can- certain types of cancers. And so, so it's kind of this weird, like, coin cost or a coin toss between like is it worth the higher risk of cancer not to break your hip uh so um, um anyways yeah no, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because i actually did want to talk about that a little bit that is actually one of the reasons that people cite concern with dairy products um you, you know pe- people say that uh it's not really natural to drink milk people weren't drinking milk before agricultural times um and you know humans drink the milk from another animal, but other animals don't drink milk from other species. Um, but, but if you, if you just purely look at it from a nutrient standpoint, the nutrients that milk has are important for human health. One of the concerns though, um, could be that up to about a hundred years ago, milk processing was, was different. Um, the, there's a, where is it cited to here? Um, it's, it's only a hypothesis. It's not, it hasn't really been, it's a hypothesis that's been around since at least 2005. Um, if you, if you measure the estrogen levels in milk, um, a lot of times in the past hundred years, um, lactating cows are used for, well, obviously lactating cows are used for milk, but most of the time the cows that we're getting milk from are, (laughs) yes, but most (laughs) of the time cows are pregnant when they're producing milk. And in later stages of pregnancy, the amount of estrogen substances in the milk is 33 times higher than it is in non-pregnant cows. So, um, there is more estrogen in our milk and we do see a link between, um, risk of ovarian cancer and dairy intake. So women who drink at least three glasses of milk a day in a study, if, if, if you look at um, a cohort of 12 prospective studies of over 500,000 women, they find that those who are drinking at least three glasses of milk a day have higher risk of higher rates of ovarian cancer and I breast cancer okay. than those who drink um, the lowest the lowest amount of milk. And so they're not sure if it's because of lactose. They, they think maybe it's like the, because lactose is uh, glucose and galactose molecules bound together. And galactose has been shown to increase risks of certain cancers, apparently, but also estrogens, like you were saying. So it is kind of a trade-off because the, the estrogen can, like, the, so when you're, when you're producing Sorry, <laughs> I'm getting myself all, all, all confused here. You're pulling a Scott. Yeah, yes. Well, I'm just as tired as you. I don't have the whole jet lag excuse, but I'm fairly tired. Anyway, <laughs> it's it's definitely nothing definitive, but it, it can potentially be concerned. It's, it's an area that requires more research to see whether the, the estrogen substances in milk could be increasing rates of um, hormone-related cancers. In people, um, there seems to be a fairly clear link between uh, dairy consumption and prostate cancer in men, and they think that is mostly related, actually, to the calcium in the milk. So it's not solely a decrease related. or increase. Increase. Interesting. Okay. Increase, and it's not solely from dairy necessarily. It's just too much calcium in general is not good for men. So, so are you saying milk should move on over? <laughs> potentially, potentially. Um, 
it's still it's a gray area and even the you know like i mentioned that the harvard school of public health it tends to be the most anti-dairy but even they tend to stick to a fairly reasonable recommendation of yeah still drink milk but maybe don't drink a ton of it stick to one or two glasses I mean, three a day glasses a day is a lot of milk it is, it is. But I mean, if you consider dairy, I mean, other dairy products like yogurt, cottage cheese, cheese, you know, there are other dairy containing products that we eat that will add up to the three glasses a day equivalent. Right. Um, interestingly, so, so estrogen is fat soluble. So I guess if you drink skim milk, there wouldn't be as much estrogen containing substance in there. So just another reason why low fat dairy might be a better choice than, than uh, full fat dairy. Um, not only because of the lower saturated fat content and calorie content, but also because you're not going to get some of those fat-soluble estrogens. Um, right, right. I wonder how they keep the vitamin D in it then. Because I know skim milk is fortified with vitamin D. Vitamin D is not fat-soluble. See, this is what happens. I wonder if fat is really <laughs> fat-free, though. Is it one of those things where like, it contains still like 0.1% fat? and I mean, you really don't need a lot to, to you know what I mean? Right. Um, or maybe the fortify, maybe the vitamin D is um, is in a wrapper of sorts. You know what I mean? That will solubilize it, but still make it bioavailable. That's not that doesn't contain animal fat. You know? Yeah, it could be. I'll I'll have an answer for you by the end of the show for sure. We'll, we'll okay. revisit this. Um. So do you find what is what's your thoughts on soy milk? Um. I don't. I don't know. See, soy milk is kind of a fairly new thing. So, There's the same kind of estrogen concerns. I know yeah, people. Well, they actually, the soy, they say it's. Go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. With, with the soy products, same thing. Like substances that resemble estrogens, the isoflavones. Right. Yep. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just I don't really do much milk just because it's not. I I put like half and half in my coffee. That's pretty much like what I get. So yeah. Oh, if it doesn't affect me, I don't care. <laughs> what was interesting to me about vitamin D is that there's probably most Americans need more than the general recommended amount of vitamin D a day. Um, typically, well, there, there aren't a lot of foods that are high in vitamin D other than foods that are fortified with it. Typically, we get vitamin D from sun exposure. You know, the rays of the sun will, will convert uh, the substances in our skin into vitamin D. But if you're living above a certain latitude, I think it's 40 degrees latitude. So if you live north of San Francisco, basically, you're, uh -huh. yeah, the, the sun's rays aren't strong enough to make that conversion. So then you would want to look for either a supplement containing vitamin D or I don't know if that would warrant drinking more milk. It's always, yeah, you get into a gray area of whether you should be recommending supplements and at what level. But it appears to be that if you're living at a high altitude or if you, I mean, not a high latitude, or if you have darker skin or you're not outside a lot, that 2,000 um, international units of vitamin D3 a day would be warranted. That still seems to be within safe levels. Um, anyway, so if you're if you're not going to do dairy um, and you want to get enough calcium, there are other foods that contain calcium. Um Dark leafy greens, particularly collards, have a lot. Um, if you eat a cup of boiled collards, that's 357 yeah. milligrams of calcium, which is uh -huh. about the same as a cup of low-fat yogurt. It's a lot of collards, man. But uh, yeah, I can't do those. They always they smell like farts. How about I mean, black-eyed peas? You a fan of oh, those? That counts. Yeah, yeah. A cup oh. of black-eyed peas, uh, okay. boiled, 211 milligrams of calcium. It's pretty good considering you need a thousand a day. Uh, 
And, you know, that thousand a day might be overshooting it just a little bit. What about like a, a couple slices of pizza, ma'am? Oh, pizza. All right. Well, mm-hmm. uh... I'm looking for alternatives here. <laughs> you haven't convinced me with your current options. I'm, sure. I'm reaching. You know, well, I've got some cheese there. You know, what's funny. The, the highest calcium cheese is actually American cheese. Oh, nice. So make yourself a nice little American cheese pizza. Yeah, throw or a, little, a, a, throw a, a grilled cheese sandwich. cheese on there. Yep. <laughs> Yum. Um, yeah. Other good sources would be like a trail mix with nuts, seeds, and chocolate chips. Or even iceberg lettuce. Oh, oh well, you'd have to eat a whole head of it. A head of iceberg <laughs> lettuce contains 97 <laughs> milligrams of calcium. Why is that even on uh. the list? All right, I'm done. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the alternatives. That's very, very, very registered dietitian of you, and we appreciate that. Of Normally, course. Christian and I would just say, "Yeah, you need it. That sucks." So, anyways, what else? <laughs> like, move on. <laughs> you actually give solutions to the problem. Um, well, cool. So, um, uh, it sounds like the ultimate thing with milk is little bits, not bad. Um, a lot's probably not that bad. I mean, when they talk about statistically significant increases of types of cancer. This that can still mean that like rather than one in a thousand people getting cancer, two in a thousand do. So like it's still like really low, but like you're like it's very easy to, to for. And I haven't looked at these numbers, so it may be much more significant. But if two people out of a thousand versus one in a thousand, you could say well the rates of cancer doubles mm-hmm. with people who drink three or more glasses of milk a day. But that's not really entirely representative of the data set it's a little misleading you know what i mean because it's still only two out of a thousand people and again i made those numbers up i have no idea what they are for no milk, absolutely but, uh, well it's, it's just it's such a tough area of research right now because everything we have is just associations um like one of one of the one of the big reasons that people cite a concern about dairy is that countries with the lowest rates of dairy consumption um like africa african and asian countries have the lowest rates of osteoporosis so people feel very suspicious of the idea that you should be eating dairy for bone health. Right. So, Interesting. But you can't really pinpoint that to a sing- singular food necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Yep. Thank you, Ms. Balkenbush. Of course. Um, since I got two little stories here, I'll, I'll throw it in. And then, uh, Christian, I, I'm very excited. You're actually, yours will dovetail very nicely off of mine. Um, Sweet. So uh, I'm going to start by uh, by putting you guys on the spot. Oh, gosh. Um, can you, do you are you do you guys know the difference between a poison, a toxin, and a venom? No. Um, when you eat, when you inject, and when you lick off the table, I have no idea. You actually, you are spot on there. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Even two of them. off a table, wow, <laughs> yeah. uh, or a frog. Um, uh, so uh, a poison is just any substance that's harmful or deadly to someone. Um, and uh, it can be natural or manufactured, so it's just something that's going to cause you to be unhappy. Um, toxins are poisons produced by an organism, and they have an antigenic property to them. They typically are higher molecular weight, so they're not like little tiny poisons like a polonium or plutonium, whatever you want to look at. That would be like a poison because it's just you know a molecule that's causing damage to you, whereas you know a, a protein or a peptide made by an organism is a toxin. And kind of a subcategory of a toxin is a venom. And venoms are secreted by animals for the purpose of causing harm to another. Um, And they are typically and almost exclusively injected by means of a bite or a sting or something. So think of a venom as like a snake or a bee sting or a spider. 
a toxin could be like botulinum toxin. It's just something excreted by an animal that in small doses causes damage to you. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of organic product there. So those are the difference between, and I say all this, uh, for two little mini stories in here, one of which is very sad. The other is kind of crazy and interesting. So the first is, um, since we're all experts in what the difference between those are now, here's your pop quiz. What would potassium, what would cyanide be? Potassium cyanide. So what would cyanide be out of the three of those? And uh, let's pause for a moment. Let the players at home formulate an answer. Is cyanide a toxin, a poison, or a venom? Christian or Carolina? Oh, God. I didn't know there'd be a test. <laughs> cyanide. That'd be a poison. That would be 100% correct. Yeah, absolutely. Good job. Because um, uh, cyanide is not, uh, it, 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 I don't know of any organisms that create cyanide. They may, um, so it may fall into the toxic category, but it's a small molecule. It's manufactured and it causes devastating harm to individuals. Why do I bring this up? This is the sad story. Jeez, and I read this and I was just like, oh my God. So a, uh, a very liked and a very accomplished scientist working in a lab for 31 years in Great Britain, I believe, he uh, decided he was done here on planet Earth, and he took an entire canister of several grams of potassium cyanide, and he went to his car, and he basically just ate the whole thing. Um, Holy crap. Cyanide is devastatingly toxic. Um, it is, uh, uh, it, and I'll explain how, why it is in that case. Uh, the bottom line is he was clinically depressed, and the headline to the title was that he... His body was so toxic from eating this that they refused to even do a post-mortem on him. They even refused to do an autopsy to verify this is what actually killed him because of fears that it would uh, it could endanger the autopsy staff. And they won't even touch the car. They said there was a thin powder on the car, uh, on the dashboard, which I would guess. So one of the sad things about taking potassium or taking cyanide is that it burns really bad when you do it. And so I'm guessing he basically just downed the whole thing and then he coughed a lot of it up, um, which aerosolized Ugh. it and went on the thing. Anyways, really depressing, really sad. Felt really bad for this guy. It is not a pleasant way to go. Um, and, uh, uh, uh not to, <laughs> shameless self-plug uh, one of my poison cast I do if you go to poisoncast.com is on cyanide and I explain in extreme detail how it kills you but the bottom line is that cyanide is, is actually a really cool drug chemically um, it is an inhibitor of the enzyme cytochrome C oxidase which is in the electron transport chain in the inner uh, mitochondrial membrane uh, for the oxygen cycle so you know if you've ever wanted like why do you actually need oxygen like what is it like why don't we need nitrogen to breathe what's special about oxygen oxygen is uh formed a symbiosis with the with the mitochondria to to create atp and it goes through this chain and it's very good at exchanging in its electrons with this uh, electron transport cycle here and what it does is that um uh through electron exchanges, it converts itself into water, and the you get ATP as a byproduct, and ATP is energy for all the cell. And so when you inhibit cytochrome C oxidase, um, the binding of the cyanide prevents the transport of electrons from cytochrome C to the oxygen, and therefore the oxygen just can't be utilized. And what it's doing in a nutshell is it's you're drowning in air. You you're breathing. I'm sure you're panting heavily for the 45 seconds of consciousness you have, but you 
your your body literally can't use the oxygen it's saturating its blood with because it just it just sits there and it says yeah I'd love to use you but this cyanide here has blocked up the 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 entrance to the uh, to the to, to the the mitochondria transport the oxygen transport system and therefore you can't be used and uh, you die and it's a uh, a very quick death but it's also um, I'm sure very unpleasant so anyways uh, that's depressing but. I have a second question for you guys now. Um, you thought the test was over, but it's not. So if a frog, we're talking about frogs now, we're moving away from depressing uh, cyanide. If a frog secretes something through its skin that hurts you, Christian's licking the table philosophy, what would that be? Would that be a poison, a toxin, or a venom? I think that would be a... Poison again. A, a toxin? Frog. Oh, is, it to- is it a toxin? <laughs> it would be a toxin. Uh, it'd be a toxin because it's cre- it's created by the organism. It's a higher molecular weight, and it is not injected via a fang or a stinger, so that would fall into our toxin category here. And if you think of like a poison dart frog, and as far as we knew until very recently, all kinds of frogs that have poisons, they would all fall into that toxin category. However, as it turns out, an unfortunate herpetologist by the name of Carlos Jared at the Boutinon Institute in, say, uh, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, if I can say it properly, um, discovered that the hard way that there are two species of Brazilian frogs that are also venomous. What do I mean by venomous? I mean that they have this crown of thorns on their head. And this was just discovered like a week ago. They have a crown of thorns on their head that will inject the toxin into the person. And uh, this is a very scary thing here. The the I will play our other favorite game here, which is Scott trying to pronounce organisms that he can't. And uh, the two types of frogs, if you're curious, are the Corythomantis uh, greeningi and the Asparagus. Phenonodum brunei. I'm just not going to do that in the future. I'm just going to say two frogs <laughs> so I sound less mentally challenged. Um, so uh, both of these have the spikes. Both of them inject poison into the into the individual. And um, as it turns out, the result, uh, as found out by Jared, is he was, uh, I would say, injected, would might be the right term, by the lesser of the two poisonous ones. And for the following five hours... He had what was described as intense pain, radiating up, radiating up the arm, lasting five hours, and uh, and it was a massively unpleasant process. But if he'd been stung or injected by the more venomous one, it may have actually killed him. So, uh, completely new to the world of frogs is that they uh, uh, that they can now inject uh, the poison into it. And as it turns out, like. As I said, he got he got injected by the less of the two poison ones here. And when I looked up the toxicity, uh, they said that the toxicity from the more poisonous one uh, could kill three hundred thousand mice or eighty humans with one gram. That's a bit of an Jeez. inflated number. It's an accurate number, but you would never get one gram of toxin. I mean, one, you might get that from like a like a rattlesnake bite or something, not from a, a small frog. But um, I did some conversions here, and so. Uh, if we were to compare this to like the poison dart frog or to like a pit viper, uh, an average human weighs 80 kilograms. Uh, that's about 175 pounds. Uh, so um, that means that 
it would take 12.5 milligrams of this poison to kill one human, which is like 12,500 micrograms. And if you compare that to the poison dart frog, whose LD50 is two micrograms per kilogram, it's only about 180th as toxic as the poison dart frog, but it's twice as toxic as a pit viper. So that just gives you an idea how crazy the, 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 the poison dart frog is, by the way, because this could still probably put you in the hospital, maybe even kill you in a worst case scenario. And it's only one 80th as poison. It's the poison dart frog. So, uh, so good times. Um, and, uh, the fun fact about the poison dart frog, right? So it, the poison dart frog, it, it kills you. Uh, it's poison is a, or I should say it's toxin is a lipophilic alkaloid, which means it, 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 it will cross the, your, 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 your skin very easily because it's a, it's not like a, like, um, water. It's not hydrophilic. It's lipophilic it means it crosses fat very easily. And that it, things like that go right through your skin. No problem. And these lipid soluble based toxins, uh, with the poison dart frog is called a, 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 a bactrocotoxin or BTX. It goes in, it finds its way to sodium channels in your neurons, and it flips those bad boys on permanently and irreversibly, which means that it doesn't matter how long you wait, it's not going away. And so it binds itself to the sodium channels in your neurons, and it just completely opens those floodgates. Sodium flows in uh, continuously, which means that all your neurons are going to depolarize. They're all going to fire at the same time. Uh, as you imagine, you would go into spasms. Uh, your brain would stop working in short order because it can't repolarize those membranes and those neurons are just going to remain in those open, gated, depolarized state. And you're, I don't know if you would die of not being able to breathe first or if you would die because your neurons, your brain would flip off like a light switch first. But in any case, not pleasant. Not something you want to do. Nope. And, uh, but that's the poison dart frog. I couldn't find what toxin they were saying was in this other frog, but uh, that's just a little fun back there. So that's what I have for, for poisons. And not all poisons are bad, though. Right, Christian? Um, well, uh, I, I would <laughs> say they're, <laughs> they're probably all bad, but it, it depends on how you get them and where they go to. Um, so I'm really talking... Scott loves this story because it involves the poison from a snail. However, the poison from the snail isn't really the super interesting part of this story. But I'm going to tell that part a little bit anyway. Um, so what happened was pain medication in hospitals is like a big thing because, you know, they're slicing people open. People don't want to suffer. Um, and there's some really, really awesome painkillers out there. And one of them is this peptide from a snail. And it's actually the toxin. I'm not exactly sure what the snail does with it. Um, it, is a, it is a toxic secretion from the, from the snail that I'm sure is, you know, helps it. Not feed. a cone snail, is it? It's not conotoxin. A, a marine snail. Conotoxin. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's my favorite toxin. One of my favorite toxins. I love it. It uses it to paralyze fish so it can eat them. Yeah. Because you can imagine if you sting a fish and it even swims away 20 feet uh, and you're a little snail, uh, that meal is long gone. So uh, you need to kill it pretty much instantaneously. And it would do the same to a human, by the way. Um, so anyways, yes, conotoxin. Yeah. I love this stuff. Um, I am I am going to reserve my judgment on whether or not that is exactly what this is because they're injecting this stuff into people. Um, into their spinal column to remove pain. 
Oh, interesting. So if it's uh-huh. that if it's that toxic, then these people, I would assume, would die a horrible death. Um, uh, it would. Well, it's yeah. So I think actually, I think it's it does the same thing. I think it it uh, I think it's a, a sodium channel. Uh, it's the opposite of the frog one, if I believe it's a sodium channel inhibitor. I'll have to I'll Google it while hmm. you're talking. But uh, yeah, yeah like, it seems like it would travel up the spine and basically like eventually take out your diaphragm or something, right? Well, yeah, I I mean, it goes into the brain. If you're inhibiting sodium channels in the brain, that could be a problem. Yes. But, um, um, so, so, I'm sorry. Please I don't continue. know. Okay. Um, but the interesting part about this is, is that this particular uh, peptide, which a peptide is just a short sequence of amino acids, so it's like a really tiny protein. Um, and you use a lot of peptide neurotransmitters and things naturally. This particular one actually has a a pharmacologically patented name as a as a pain drug pre prealt I think uh, prealt that's it um, and it it is a killer pain I shouldn't say that that way it is a it is an amazing pain reduction drug and the problem is that it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier and. A lot of people um, have an interesting view of the blood-brain barrier, but really all the blood-brain barrier is is the way the, the blood vessels in the brain are exclusionary in what they allow to get into the brain area. In other words, it's not like a physical, a single physical membrane that covers the brain. Um, it is just the way that the blood is allowed to um, transmit things to the brain area and not allowed. It's a very controlled environment because obviously a lot of things that get circulated in your blood would probably not be the best for your brain. So your body is kind of sealed your brain off by not allowing things to, to cross the blood brain barrier readily. And that's actually a problem with a lot of drugs, but this one in particular, because in order to use this as a painkiller, as I said earlier, they have to inject it right into your spine. And just that idea sounds terrifying to me. If someone's like, oh, we're going to jam this giant needle right into your spine, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound bad. Yeah, ask any um, pregnant woman who's going into labor. They I, get that fun experience. <laughs> one more reason why I could never be pregnant. But <laughs> there's, there's several reasons why you could never get pregnant. Uh, I mean, if I, yeah, if I was biologically capable, I would be psychologically incapable. But anyways, <laughs> um, so there was a group that was looking for a way to deliver this pain medication either through a pill or um, like a, in a liquid that you could take orally, some way to get this into your body without requiring a giant horse needle and a lot of screaming and death. Um, and I'm going to say that the the name of this lab's owner is Mandy. It's M-A-N-D and umlaut E. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Okay. That's, so she, she is from Deutschland. Yeah, I am assuming. The last name is Holford. So... Dr. Holford. I should have said Dr. Holford. That would have been so much easier. (laughs) But they've been working in a way to try to get this peptide across the blood-brain barrier. And 
they released this paper talking about taking pieces of a viral um, a viral coat. So viruses have basically a little um, they call them a capsid, but it's basically just a little place where it holds its genetic information. And, and it looks either like a lunar lander or some look like a, a cylinder, but they all have different shapes. But basically what they did is they created this nano container by taking the viral capsid from Salmonella trypimurium. I'm pulling a Scott right now. Hey, you pull a Scott. Yeah. It, we're going to call it the Salmonella bacteriophage because what that means is that it's a, a virus that attacks the Salmonella bacteria. And so they took this, they took this, um, I can't even speak right now. They took this capsid and they added an HIV peptide to the exterior of the capsid. Um, anybody want to guess why they put the HIV peptide on the exterior of the capsid? Well, HIV normally binds to white blood cells like C42 or something like that. It binds very specifically to a peptide on the outside of white blood cells. So that's a little confusing to me. I, I, I don't know why. It, it is part of the peptide that triggers the endocytotic portion ah, of the viral uptake Good. so okay it, it people people um or i'm sorry not people viruses viruses have a few ways of getting into the cell but one of them is is that they get endocytosed which means that the the membrane actually sort of encompasses them into this little vesicle and those vesicles have signals based on what proteins are on their outside as to what's going to happen to them. They can merge with endosome or um, with lysosomes and everything in them can be destroyed by acid, which would make a really cool cartoon, just a very short cartoon. But um, another thing that can happen is they can pass completely through the cell and pop out the other side. Um, and that's what this particular HIV peptide, in the, not in the presence of anything else on the HIV virus, allows this to do. So what happens is a cell grabs hold of this virus particle that they have engineered to have this drug inside of it. It grabs hold of it. It pulls it into the cell in in a little, in basically a little, um, I'll call it an endosome. And the endosome is then shuttled across the cell and pops out the other side. So it literally crosses the um, blood-brain barrier and pops out into the blood supply for the brain. And they're very excited about this because um, they can use this particular viral transport to take a lot of different things across the blood-brain barrier, um, basically any peptide, because they when they synthesize all of this, this is a protein. Like, there's nothing in this construct that isn't a protein. So they can genetically make these and they can put the peptide inside genetically they can actually have it produce that um it's almost like a virally derived liposome like it can kind of like right. target the brain this is really important because we have tons of drugs that would be great in the brain we just can't get them there correct now i i only have um one problem or i only have one issue and i don't know exactly how 
they're going to overcome this issue. But how do they get the stupid thing out? You you put the the peptide in the the capsule, right? You send the capsule across the blood-brain barrier. It's now encased in a layer of membrane. Right. So now you have a layer of membrane, a layer of protein, and inside all of this is a peptide that needs to get attached to a nerve. Yeah, so I, uh, there are different ways. Like, I mean, you do have um, – endosomes are broken down in the cell. You have the um, – I'm trying to remember the the protein. It's got a real common name. Uh, you have an enzyme that will break down the endosome, and it will normally break down all errant proteins, even misfolded proteins in the cell. But that will typically transfer it to another, like a like a liposome that will destroy it or degrade the protein. So, um, it's a good question. I I uh, I don't know. Yeah, and this is um, they, they don't mention that, and that would be my one. Like if this were a, if this were a seminar, and I was raising my hand, that would be my question. Right. They, they kind of gloss over it. This is a paper which I love when papers in like nature gloss over things. You're just like, oh, okay, well that's fine. Yeah, they do, well they do that thing where they're like, well you must know if you're reading nature, so uh, let's not quibble over some <laughs> basic biology here. I, I think that the but being pharmacologists, we ask the important question: How is this going to impact receptors and blah blah blah? And they're not interested in that really. For this work, this work is just saying, can we come up with a way to get this thing across the blood-brain barrier, and we'll figure out how to make it actually work later. Like, right. Um, a lot of the a lot of these nanoparticles that they're using have some sort of switch, like a pH switch or a an environment switch, where if they come into contact with the environment that they want them to release in, that it will change the protein conformation or do whatever. I didn't see anything about that in here, um, so I don't know what their plan is to get the sucker out of there because they have encapsulated it so well inside this thing that it's resistant to lysosome degradation and it can cross um, the endothelial cell into the brain's blood supply unmolested. That makes it pretty, you know, it's pretty strong. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting. Um, and then, of I course, mean, it comes out covered in lipid too. All cells, I mean, use endosomal transport of some kind to get stuff from the outside that can't cross the membrane in. So, I the cell has a mechanism to essentially extract what inside of an endosome, what's inside of an endosome for its own use. I just don't, I don't know what enzyme it is that I'm guessing something but, lyses that little. But I feel endosome. like this has to be because they show it in their little diagram going through the lysosome across the blood brain barrier. So it's resistant to that. Yeah. Would you, I mean, it is literally cap If it were not capable, it would never get across the blood brain barrier. It's like they've done their job too well. Yeah. Like yeah, that's I, that was my thought. I was like, man, this is so resistant to being broken down that it's going to make its way all the way through the lysosome. And the recycling endosomes and get spit out the other side. How the heck are they going to get the cargo out? Yeah. It's like feeding poor people in Africa by dropping a solid lead block on them and saying there's some food in there. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be pretty pissed off when they can't get it open. So I don't yeah. know. 
We but, may never know. These might be the unknown aspect of science. Well, they they may figure it out, which would be cool. You know, I'm sure they're working on that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that somebody in the lab was like, uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> they, hilarious. This should probably come out on the other side and be useful at some point. So, <laughs> so uh, maybe in the future. But it's a, it's a very cool concept how they did it. So, I mean, yeah. if I hear you right, they took part of a – they took a – viral shell from a virus that attacks salmonella mm-hmm. and they took some bits of hiv so that it can be cross so it will be sucked into the cell mm-hmm. they you can put whatever you want in the little cargo container yep in the center and then therefore it will cross the blood brain barrier um where it previously would not have and so i mean it's it's some pretty cool science i mean at least basic science you know yeah i i mean I dig that stuff. I I tend to ask the pharmacology question, which is, you know, how's, how's it, it gonna, interacting? Yeah, how's it going to work? But this was not a pharmacology paper. This was a, a a proof of concept scientific paper. So, right. Yes. You care more about the paratroopers in the in, in, <laughs> right. in, in the uh, in the cargo in the airplane, not about the airplane itself, in right? You want to know what this airplane? Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks, Christian. No problemo. Um, I by no means have enough time to get into my last story here, uh, which is about uh, a decision that the FDA or the FDA just got uh, potentially some of their power stripped away, and it's horrible. And it's actually something I want to talk about a bit at length here. Um, uh, so, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Aaron Miller, a, f- a friend of the show, Aaron Miller has been a couple times. He deals with uh, uh, patent law. And uh, this kind of applies to that too. And it's not a boring patent law. This is actually a very interesting case here. Um, so maybe I'll try to get him on and we'll talk about it then. So I will save my second story for next week. Can we get a little teaser? A little. Uh, you want a little teaser mm-hmm. about it? Uh, it? Yeah, it's following the idea that um, a, a drug company is claiming that its First Amendment rights of free speech are being violated because it can't take research that it's conducted and use that to go to doctors to convince them to administer their drug. Uh, they're saying the FDA is preventing them from providing doctors research because hmm. um, uh, because the uh, because the FDA because they're saying their First Amendment rights are being violated because they are the FDA is saying no, you can't take your research, go to doctors and say this is going to cure this. Because of your the research you've conducted, it needs to go through us. We need to do safety and efficacy. And uh, this lawsuit basically said that uh, that they can they can uh-huh. go to the doctors and say uh, you should prescribe this drug because of this research we did. Um, so it's a, it's got huge wow. implications if this thing sticks. And there's a whole bunch of fun stuff to talk about on this. But yes, we will we will save that for uh, for next week. So uh, tune in and I'll I'll, I'll email uh, Aaron to see if uh, if he wants to chime in on this or not. So. Um, Okay, good. Oh, I just wanted to mention real quick. Um, so vitamin D in skim milk is actually in the milk, and the reason for that is it binds the proteins in the milk. Hmm. And that's actually how vitamin D is carried in the blood anyway. It's bound to proteins. So. Uh-huh. Very interesting. It works. You keep saying vitamin D. It reminds me in the military we um, uh, we had vitamin M, which oh. was uh, Motrin, because, uh, which is an oh. ibuprofen. Um <laughs> Because they they would it was always the the corpsmen who were the um, I was in the Marine Corps and so they have a uh, the, the we have corpsmen who are Navy and they're like 
kind of like they follow everyone they follow us around and battle and all that fun stuff they always have the drugs and it's anytime you went to the corpsman for anything it was always you were going to get vitamin m like oh my knee hurts my back hurts whatever it's just vitamin m vitamin m so uh that's awesome. Fun side note about military culture, if you didn't know that. I did not. Now you know what vitamin M is. Um, <laughs> is it fat-soluble? <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. He, he's going to look it up now. No, I'm just thinking about it. Ibuprofen? I bet it is partially fat-soluble because um, all those have those – they all have ring structures in them, all those drugs, mm-hmm. and, and those tend to be uh, very lipophilic. So um, in any case, I have three jokes. Uh- Thanks for doing all the work that we did. Yes, uh, I did it when Christian was talking. So I'm like, oh, I'm like, I don't have any jokes. Um, okay, these are horrible, um, but I mean, of aren't they all? Uh, what did the femur say to the patella? <laughs> what? I need you. Oh. Uh, if H two O is the formula for water, what is the formula for ice? What? H2O cubed. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, no, I got a worse one. Don't worry. <laughs> you save, save your heaviest size, Carolina. There's a worse one here. Um, <laughs> what type of flowers does every person have? Oh, I'm going to like this one. What? Okay, okay. Two lips. Wow. Yeah, there's another joke that's like that. T-W-O Have you heard the one, tulips. what's better than roses on a piano? What? Tulips on an organ. <laughs> Tulips. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that, that's a little sassy. It's, it's kind of related, though. Yeah, it is. That's totally hilarious. Same thing. Tulips on an organ. That is hilarious. I'm going to go tell Dharma that right now. Hey, that's hey. a funny joke. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Last thing before we sign off here. So I stopped asking for reviews on iTunes because I thought that this train that we this 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 review train that we left the station had gathered enough momentum to assure us a steady stream of reviews, even if it was only like one a, or two a month. As it turns out, I was wrong. Getting reviews is not like a train with momentum. It's more like pushing like a three-ton concrete block across a parking lot. The second, <laughs> the second you stop pushing, it stops moving. Um, and so uh, I am begging you again. I'm going against my word, and I'm saying please leave us reviews. We've been stuck at 21 for like a month and a half now. So oh just takes one of you. That's it. Go do it. And, uh, and you'll make just me take one it. of you because that was the entire point of his whole speech. So good times. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any good. If I if I knew a better way to try to get reviews, I would do it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm Generate just going to pay. better content. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. I think I'm just going to go to one of those like, I, I bet you if I Googled how to get iTunes reviews, I bet I could pay like $30 and get like 50 iTunes reviews from some like farm in China. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Maybe I'll just do that. Yeah. Screw ethics and morals. I want Uh-oh. reviews. <laughs> okay. I'm joking. I'm not going to do that. I believe in our listeners. Okay. Uh, I am going to go pass out right now. Good time. I am so tired. Sweet. Have a good Thank week, guys. Have a good week. Thanks Enjoy for your patience, guys. Your week, oh, audience. Okay. And see. Okay. Um, stop recording.